believe my son has um, standing long jump in his uh, <laughs> career ahead. We'll see, we'll see how he does with that. He was go- getting pretty good distance off the top step here, so we'll have to talk about that after church. It is uh, so great to see uh, many of you here this morning. Uh, it's great to see the Reimer family back from your epic journey out, out to the East Coast. And from what we hear and, and have seen pictures of, the wedding went very well and the weather was beautiful. And, and uh, we wish, obviously, we could have been there. But, uh, yeah, we're, we're very um, happy for the Reimer family and, of course, for Paul and for Lindsay. And uh, we want to wish God's blessing on them as well. Um, I invite you to bow with me now. Once more, as we prepare to hear from God's word. Heavenly Father, uh, this morning we are being reminded of two things, of of how you reward and bless faith, and how through exercising our faith, there are many times in life and many moments that requires great courage to do so, even as we just saw in this video. And so I pray, Lord, that this morning... Uh, as we continue to be prompted and, and stirred and instructed on what it looks like to live out this faith boldly without fear, to obey your word above the word of men, and to live according to your ways rather than how we may feel on a particular day. Lord, all of these things are paramount to living the Christian life. And so I pray, Lord, that you would work in each one of our hearts to that end. And now, Lord, I pray that you would grant me the courage to speak this word clearly and boldly as you have laid it upon my heart. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I begin this morning with a story of a wealthy New York City family who decided to leave the the rat race of the hectic city life, to leave that all behind and to move out west where they bought a ranch and intended to raise cattle. Well, later on, after acquiring this ranch and beginning their their life in the the simple West, some city friends from New York came out to visit them. And after touring the ranch, they asked them, have you given the ranch a name yet? Well, said the would-be cattleman, I wanted to name it the Bar J. But my wife favored the Susie Q. One son liked the Flying W, and another wanted the Lazy Y. We just couldn't decide, though, and and we finally decided we would compromise. And and so we've decided we're calling it the Bar J Suzy Q Flying W Lazy Y Ranch. (laughs) Boy, that's quite, quite the mouthful, the friend replied. But where are all your cattle? Well, unfortunately, the wannabe rancher replied, none of them survived the branding. You had to think about that one for a second. Compromise, compromise, compromise. That's the word we want to focus on this morning, compromise. Now, compromise is an interesting word, isn't it? It's an interesting concept because as most of you know, or I should say many of you know, there are times where compromise is in fact a good thing. For example, any happily married couple knows that learning to compromise with each other is a key ingredient to the health of their marriage. But on the other hand, we also know that there are times that compromise is a bad thing, and it leads to unintended consequences, not unlike the opening story. It all depends on the context. There's one place, however, there's one place 
that with very few exceptions, compromise is almost always negative and almost always without fail leads to unintended and negative consequences. And that is when we compromise our faith and our Christian convictions in the face of external pressure. Let me say that once more. When we compromise our faith and our Christian convictions in the face of external pressure. In other words, it's when we go along to get along in order to fit in with the beliefs of the world around us. When we do so, we are entering very dangerous ground. Now, interestingly enough, the word compromise itself is not used anywhere in the Bible. But the principle of not giving in to spiritual compromise is addressed throughout the pages of Scripture, perhaps nowhere more strongly than in the book of James, chapter 4, verse 4, where where James just lays it on the line, and this is what he says. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Now, that's about as blunt as it gets. Friendship with the world, going along with the principles and ways of the world, being, being friendly, cozying up with the world, is to make yourself an enemy of God. Essentially, this is telling us that to compromise living by God's standards so that we can fit in is actually the same as turning our backs on God altogether. And make no mistake about it, this is strong language. And he intended it to be that way. He wanted to get people's attention by shocking them with such a strong statement. Friendship with the world is to be an enemy of God. We need to hear this more clearly than ever today. Because right now today, in case you haven't noticed yet, in case you haven't been listening to this series up until this point, but just to make sure it's crystal clear, I hope you are painfully aware of the fact that right now, today, we are living in the age of activism and compromise. And I trust that most of you are familiar with the case of how Trinity Western University has been prohibited by the Supreme Court of Canada from having a law school for the sole reason that the school required its students to sign a community covenant in which they affirmed the core tenets of the Christian faith, including a commitment to abstain from any sexual relationships outside of God's ordained design of marriage, which is between one man and one woman. Now, the Supreme Court deemed this as being, quote, harmful and discriminatory against any LGBTQ students who might like to enroll, and therefore the court ruled that banning the Trinity Western Law School was a reasonable limitation of religious freedoms. So under the Charter, a school has the the right and freedom to express beliefs as they see fit, but here the Supreme Court of Canada ruled it was reasonable to limit that religious freedom in the name of potential harm to LGBT students. Now throughout this case, Christians across our nation of Canada, and in fact around the world, have paid close attention to this case. And they have stood with Trinity Western in prayer and in support, us included. And though the battle did not go the way that we hoped it would, we know that the school still did the right thing by standing firm in the faith, in the core tenets of the faith. They stood firm on their Christian convictions. And though it looks dark, we know that God always honors the faithful. But then this past Tuesday, 
I came across a very troubling news article when the news broke that Trinity Western had released a statement that they will now no longer require students to sign their community covenant. They now deem it optional. Optional. Which, for all intents and purposes, means it's now not worth the paper it's printed on. Because if it's now optional, what does that say to the students who've already signed it? What does that say to any new students? Hey, sign this this covenant or not, no big deal. What does that say? It effectively makes it useless. Now, of course, the school still affirmed that this changed nothing about their core beliefs, and they're still requiring their faculty and staff to sign the covenant. But as soon as I read the story and I heard the particulars, I asked the question, what did this little compromise earn them? What did giving in this little bit get them? Will it appease their critics? Will it reverse the Supreme Court's ruling? Will it give them their law school back? Well, in a CBC News article that I read on the topic, you know, CBC, those bastions of unbiased objectivity, well, the CBC featured, of course, the response of a student activist who, in response to hearing that the teachers still had to sign the covenant, said, quote, that's not good enough when you're not engaging the entire Trinity community. Then one of the prosecuting lawyers also said of Trinity Western's decision, quote, I certainly think it's a positive step, but it's not sufficient to alleviate our concerns about discrimination. So in other words, a partial compromise is not good enough. They will not be granted a law school until they completely and unequivocally revoke their community covenant for everyone. And even then, I suspect that likely won't be enough. See, my friends, the lie of Satan is always the same. It's always the same. You've come up against this lie just as surely as I've come up against this lie. Anytime you face temptation or pressure to do something that you know is not right, the lie is always the same, and it's this. Just give in a little bit, and I'll leave you alone. Just give in a little bit, and and I'll go away. Just, Just give in, and it'll all be done. But does he? Does he back off? Does he give in? Does he go away? Does the pressure go away? No, never. He is relentless. You give in an inch, he will push further. He will push further. And you will continue to give in and give in, and he will keep pushing. He will not give up. My friends, make no mistake about it. The day is here. It's not just coming. The day is here. We're living in the day that if we... If you and I, if this church, if we as believers across this nation, if we don't stand firm in the faith and stand firm in our Christian convictions, we will simply be washed away with the tide of the world. Because that is what Satan is trying to do. He is trying to get us to to get along, to go along until we're gone. He's not going away anytime soon. He's not giving up on his agenda. The pressure is only increasing. And once compromise begins, where does it end? The only defense is what the Bible tells us. Funny how that works. But we have a sure defense if we follow the word of God. And the word of God tells us, stand firm. Stand firm. Resist the devil, the Bible says. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Not compromise with the devil, Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. It's the only way. So how do we do that? How do we stand firm? How do we resist?
Well, we have this amazing story in the book of Daniel. If you have your Bibles, turn there with me this morning. I'm not going to read it all again, but we can have it for reference in front of us. Daniel chapter 1, it's the introduction to one of the most incredible, fascinating, complex books in all of Scripture. It tells this this narrative story of Daniel and, and his three friends, but it also gets into some incredible prophecies of the future. But we're going to focus on the introduction in Daniel chapter 1, because it sets the tone for everything that follows. Four friends by the name of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. I always feel bad for Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah because we only know them by Shadrach and Benny, right? That's how we all know them from Veggie Tales. Their, their original Jewish names have long since been forgotten, but we, of course, remember Daniel, and we, we call him by Daniel. We don't call him Belteshazzar, so I don't know why the other guys get the unfair treatment. But nonetheless, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and Daniel, they face a dilemma. You see, the dilemma is that Due to their entire nation going into apostasy, worshiping idols, despite repeated warnings from prophets saying, repent, turn back to God, or you're going to be, you're going to be destroyed, they don't repent. Babylonians come, they besiege Jerusalem. After a lengthy siege where terrible things happen, finally the walls are breached, the city is overcome, it's destroyed, the temple is looted, all of the sacred objects of the temple are taken, most of the people are killed, and, and a few of the key people are taken into captivity. And so these four friends, who are some of the key people in the kingdom, they were born as princes in the royal family. And so they were carefully selected for their physical strength, good looks, aptitude for learning, and knowledge. In other words, these four young men were the cream of the crop of eligible bachelors that Israel had to offer. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, there's a reason why uh, he had such success. He was, he was smart like a fox. He, he was clever in all of the ways that he ruled his vast empire as he, as he conquered one kingdom after another. And so what he would do is, is, in the case of Daniel and his friends, he brought them back to his palace for three years to specially educate, groom, and train them to serve in his court. And no, I'm not talking about tennis, in case you were wondering. But the reason King Nebuchadnezzar did this was he wanted them, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, along with all of the other Jewish people he brought into captivity, he wanted them to be conditioned, conformed, and finally assimilated into the Babylonian Empire as good citizens. Essentially, cultural brainwashing. And he did it in three ways. Number one, he separated them from their families and countries. We see cults that often do this. They separate them from support networks. They they remove them from their families, places that are familiar. We see this as well in in fascist, totalitarian governments. We saw the Nazis do it with the Hitler Youth. We see North Koreans doing it today to gain control over the youth, indoctrinating them, separating them from their families. They become their family and their support network. We see it happening in gangs as well, where where disenfranchised youth, they don't have any ties to home. The gang takes them in. We're your family now. That's the first way he did it, separation from their families. Number two, and this is very important, number two, he changed their names. He changed their names. Why did he do that? Why would he change their spoken identities? He did it to make them forget their heritage and their God. Forget about where you came from. You're a new person now. Daniel which means God is my judge, he changed to Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect my life. Bel being a pagan god. 
So from the god Yahweh, the true god of heaven, now Baal, a pagan god, is associated with his name. Hananiah, which means the Lord shows grace, became Shadrach, command of a coup. A coup, again, a pagan god. Mishael means who is what God is. And Meshach, listen to this one, who is what Aku is. So close. Who is what God is? Who is what Aku is? And Azariah, which means the Lord helps, became Abednego, servant of Nebu. Nebu, of course, another pagan god. So here we see spoken identities tied to Yahweh, tied to the true God of heaven, become tied to pagan gods. So he changed their spoken identities, breaking off ties to their past and their heritage of faith. And the third and final way that he, that he sought to culturally brainwash them to the ways of Babylon was by immersing them in the ways and teaching of Babylon. So he sent them to a school where not the Hebrew scriptures were taught, but astrology, enchantment, worldly philosophies, teachings about their pagan gods, and these things were daily force-fed to them over and over and over and over. And even if they didn't like it, it just kept coming. And so now here they are in this pagan land, and the first test comes. The first test these four friends faced was not one that we would necessarily expect. It wasn't something drastic like being forced to bow down and worship a pagan idol or to renounce the God of Israel. All of those tests would come later. It started out simply and innocently. Just eat some food from the king's table. That's it. Just eat some food. It would have been the best food possible, so why not eat it? Why not? Does anyone know? What would defile them? It says Daniel purposed to not defile himself. Well, the reason was the food would not have been kosher. You see, God gave the Jewish people a dietary standard to follow. The main reason was to remind them that they were a holy nation, set apart from the other pagan nations around them. And so for them to eat food from the king's table, no matter how good it was or how innocent it seemed, would have defiled them. And Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 makes that clear. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. And so here we see right from the very start, Daniel resolves. Another translation says he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. He purposed in his heart, he resolved not to compromise right from the beginning. He would not give in to the cultural brainwashing of Babylon, even in this seemingly small thing. And we see the same thing going on in our world all around us. Cultural brainwashing is happening right now today. And it happens in three steps. Number one is conditioning. Conditioning. Through mass media, movies, the internet, schools, government policy, activism, CBC News, you name it. Worldly philosophies are subtly and overtly being taught to us and our kids. And yes, it usually starts small. But step by step by step, we are conditioned. We are conditioned. The first step is we just get used to it. Yeah, we don't like it, but we, we, get, we just get used to it. Then secondly, we finally, yeah, we accept it. Okay, this is fine. And then finally, once we've accepted it, then we promote it. Yes, this is good. Let me give you an example of that. Consider. Consider this. this it's going to seem absurd, but this is true. In the 1930s, if a movie showed so much as a woman's ankle, like an, I'm talking an ankle, like this much skin, 
In the 1930s, that was considered extremely risque, and in fact, films were banned, outlawed for that very thing. Today, we hardly bat an eyelash when something as simple as a shampoo commercial on TV, airing right during like family broadcasting time, a shampoo commercial regularly shows us completely naked women showering or bathing, of course with strategically placed bubbles and all, but that's just normal, and we don't even think about it. Everywhere we turn, sexuality has so saturated our culture that we don't even notice anymore. We have effectively been culturally brainwashed to accept the idea that modesty is outdated and irrelevant. And the same process has happened in many different arenas as well. The theory of evolution, homosexuality, sex outside of marriage, transgenderism, and on and on. All of these things that once were considered, whoa, that's way out there, have now just become normal and, yes, promoted in our culture. So that's step number one. Step number two becomes acceptance within the church. What? What did I just say? Acceptance within the church? How does that happen? Well, we should not be too surprised when these things are happening in our culture, but it is especially alarming to me when many prominent Christians... Many prominent pastors, many church denominations, and even entire Christian educational institutions are not only compromising on these things, but in some cases are even promoting them. Promoting them. Case in point, the LGBT lifestyle. It is increasingly being considered as completely okay for a Christian to practice this. Because in our culture today, the new value is feelings. Feelings trump anything else. Feelings trump objective standards. So, objective standards, biology and science would say, my, my chromosomes, my DNA are all male. They're all male. They're all masculine, right down to the smallest. They're all imprinted with male DNA, chromosomes, you name it. But if I feel that I'm no longer male, I feel I am another gender, I feel I am a woman, no matter what you think looking at me, that I look like a man, no matter what a science A scientist would tell you, looking at my DNA and chromosomes, my feelings now trump all objective standards. My feeling is now God. That is the new value of our culture. And so feelings become the trump card for everything else. Feelings trump God's word in today's culture. And yes, it's becoming insidiously into the church as well that feelings are trumping God's word within Christian circles. Now while, of course... Let me be very clear on this. People are free to choose how they want to live. And of course, and of course, of course, we as Christians are called, no exceptions, we are called to love all people regardless of how they choose to live. Right? God loves sinners. I'm so thankful for that because he loves me. We are called to love everyone. But hear me clearly, we are not called We are not called to say that everything that people do is right. Because it is God who determines what is right and what is wrong. And last time I checked, my Bible still says that all sexuality that is done outside of God's ordained design for it, all of it, all sexual immorality, including adultery, which is sleeping with someone else's spouse, including fornication, 
which is having sex outside of marriage, and including homosexuality, which is sleeping with someone of the same gender, all of it is still sin. Period. And so if God says that something is sinful, who am I and who is anyone else to say that it's otherwise, no matter how we might feel about it? God's word is the standard. Not my feelings, not your feelings, and I'm sorry if that hurts your feelings, but it's the truth, and we need to hear it today. We need to hear this truth, because the world around us is telling us the exact opposite. Now the third step of this cultural brainwashing today, it's, it's happening in the church, and if we try to stand firm against it, the club is always used through the word tolerance. You're not tolerant if you don't go along with what we're telling you. Well, tolerance by definition is this. Tolerance, a fair, objective, and permissive attitude towards those whose opinions, practices differ from your own. The willingness to tolerate opinions or behavior that you don't agree with. So tolerance, in the true sense, assumes disagreement. It assumes that I don't agree with what you're doing, but I will tolerate that you, as another person, have the free choice to live that way, even though I don't agree with it, and I will tolerate that. But the problem is, when when the world and the culture around, around us says, you need to be more tolerant, what they're saying is, we don't need you to just put up with us living in a way that you don't agree with. They want us to actually agree that it's okay. That's not actually tolerance, but that's what they think it is. You must agree that it's okay. You can't just tolerate us. You must agree it's okay. And of course, the pendulum doesn't work both ways, does it? Because are we tolerated to believe differently? Well, Trinity Western isn't. And so we see that it's going one way. Tolerance. Agree it's okay. Go along with us. But if we want to obey God, if we want to obey his word, if we want to actually be Christians of the book, we can't do that. We simply can't do that. And so they level the charge of anything at us that they want. Bigotry, new term, homophobe, all these other things that that get thrown at us for simply holding firm to the word of God. And so we must accept that if we stand our ground, we can, and in many cases are and likely will more in the future, be persecuted, be insulted, be pushed out of the public arena and square. And we must accept that. But we must stand. For when we stand firmly in God's truth, we find that we are standing in good company. We find ourselves standing with courageous men like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And let me say today that inaction is not an option. Inaction is not an option. It actually is. (laughs) Inaction is an option, and many of us are choosing it. But let me just say that it's a double-edged sword because by inaction, it is our action. By doing nothing, we are doing something. And of course, there are many Christians who silently shake their heads at the evils that are going on around them, the increasing pressure of our culture, but we say and do nothing. And this is exactly what happened to the church in Germany, when in the 1930s, a man named Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party took control of power. Many people were troubled by what was happening. Many people saw the hostility and the persecution ramping up against the Jews, but they stayed silent. They did nothing because it doesn't affect me yet. And in response to this attitude, the courageous Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. 
God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. And he was right. By not acting and simply going with the flow, keeping your head down, minding your own business, they were eventually washed away in the torrent, and all of Germany burned, and six million Jews were slaughtered. Now we say, that's so extreme, nothing like that could ever happen again. Really? History tells us otherwise. And the Word of God tells us that the day is coming where many who are faithful at one time will, will grow cold. Their faith will grow cold and they will fall away. And so we need to begin looking in the mirror and deciding, where do I stand in all of this? Because the times, they are a-changing, my friends. The pressure is increasing. Where will, where will we stand? Where will you stand? And some of you are older, I know, and you're thinking, okay, Lord, just come quickly or take me out of here, and maybe that'll happen. But we've got kids in this church, too. I've got kids in this church, and I know that what they are going to face 20, 30 years from now is going to be a whole different world than what I grew up with 20, 30 years ago. We're looking at, the, the tipping point is here. The fulcrum has arrived, and we need to make up our minds. Where do we stand? Because if we don't make up our minds now, the decision is going to be forced upon us very quickly. It happened to Daniel and his friends. Everyone in Jerusalem was saying it'll never happen to us. Our walls are secure. Our nation is secure. God is with us. He'll never let the Babylonians overrun our nation. And it happened. The decision was forced upon them. And we see that in that time, Daniel and his friends had the faith, had the courage to stand firm even when everything else was going wrong. They bucked the system. They went against the flow. They swam upstream. There's a saying, any old dead fish can float downstream. But it takes a live one to go upstream. And in this we see that even small decisions are important. Daniel's decision was made as a young man, probably in his late teens. So just imagine for a moment that you're Daniel and company. You're in a foreign land. Your future depends on pleasing your captors. And your parents aren't around to see what you do or don't do. On top of that, all it is is the best food in the world. The food of kings. Steak, shrimp, lobster, ham, deliciously unkosher ham and bacon. Can't forget the bacon. Remember, these boys had never had it before, right? No pork for the good Jews. But here it is in front of them, spread out. Best chefs in the world, and it's buffet, all you can eat. And all the Mennonites here are going, oh man, I'm getting hungry. <laughs> Hold on, we're almost, we're almost done. Right, so here's this spread in front of them. How do you turn that down? Especially when you consider that the alternative was veggies and water. Veggies and water? Instead of a buffet, a smorgasbord? On top of that, all the other Jews were eating it. Make no mistake, everyone else was compromising, including their king. Second Kings 25 tells us that the captive king Jehoiakim of Judah regularly ate at King Nebuchadnezzar's table without objection. So here we see that if everyone else is, is eating it, everyone else is compromising, including their own king, why should these four boys be any different? It's only the smallest of compromises. No one would even know, right? This is the second classic lie of Satan that, again, you have heard as well as I many times in your life. No one's watching. 
Have you heard that one before? No one will know. No one else is watching. It's just one time, and it's just such a small thing. Such a small thing. No one's watching. Satan whispers that lie billions of times a day, I'm sure. No one's watching. But God sees everything, doesn't he? God sees it all. God sees right down into the pit of our heart. And he even knows the false motives that lurk lurk deep within. He sees it all. He knows it all. Nothing is hidden from God. And Daniel and his friends face a test, a crucible. Would they remember God when everything else had gone wrong? Would they remember that God still saw them, that God still cared if they were obedient or not? Even in a pagan land, even when it seemed everyone else had turned against God, would they care that God still cared? Would they remember who was really in charge of their lives? Would they choose to please God rather than men? And I can only imagine how they wrestled with this. But Daniel finally makes up his mind. And God gives him the wisdom to not just say we're digging in our heels and saying no. He get, remember Jesus said, be, be wise as serpents. And I believe Daniel was as wise as a serpent when he proposes this test. Verses 12 and 13. Please test your servants for 10 days. A trial run. Give us nothing but veggies to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance to that of the other young men who eat the royal food. A test. 10 days. A trial run. But still, talk about gutsy. Because remember, Daniel is captive in a foreign land, and if his supervisor was afraid of his head getting chopped off, how much less the captive slaves? Their heads could be lobbed off without any provocation. But Daniel had the courage to propose this test. And incredibly, God gives the supervisor favor towards them, and he says, okay, a trial run, ten days, but no more. And the results... Verse 15, after 10 days, they looked healthier and better than all the others. Verse 17, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. Verse 20, the king found them 10 times better than all the other wise men, magicians, and enchanters in his whole kingdom. Verse 21, Daniel continued there until the first year of King Cyrus. That is a span of five kings, multiple empires, Daniel lived through every last one of them. Now, eating or not eating the food from the king's table, such a small thing, at least to me, seems so small. But let me ask you, do you suppose that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have had the courage to refuse to bow down to the bronze statue later on if they had already compromised with the food at the beginning? Would they have then been able to face the heat of the fiery furnace if they had not been able to stand the heat of the kitchen? Likewise, would Daniel have still opened his window and prayed towards Jerusalem for all to see, knowing he would be tossed to the lions for doing so, if he had already compromised with something far, far smaller? I don't think so. Even the smallest compromises of faith can have massive consequences. There's a story, a true story, that on the summit of a hill in one of the western states of America, there's this courthouse strategically situated so that the raindrops falling on one side of its roof run off into the Lake Erie drainage basin and from there run through the St. Lawrence Seaway and into the Atlantic Ocean. 
a long journey. But the drops that land on the other side of the courthouse roof, they drain west and south until they reach the Ohio and Mississippi rivers and end up in the Gulf of Mexico. Another long journey in the entirely different direction. And so here we see that on the peak of this courthouse roof, the faintest breath of wind blowing a raindrop one way or the other can determine its destination by a span of 3,000 miles. And in the same way, it's often a single action or inaction that can determine a person's destiny for a lifetime and into eternity. And you see, God blessed Daniel and his friends because of their courageous obedience to not compromise even in a hostile land, pressuring them from every direction to do so. And the same holds true for us today. How many of you are willing to take a stand and speak the truth of God when called upon? How many of you? How many of you are willing to to stand and say that things are sin when God says they're sin? How many of you are willing to not compromise even when it seems that everyone else is doing it? To obey God even when it looks like to do so will mean rejection and even persecution. How many? By the grace of God, I am. And I pray that you are as well. Because this is and will increasingly be the challenge that we face in a country and culture that is increasingly rejecting God and his standards. I pray with all that I have that God would grant us the faith, the conviction, and the courage to stand and remember that when we stand firm, we are standing in good company. We stand with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We stand with men like the Apostle Paul who said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And finally, we stand with the Lord Jesus Christ himself who said, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have placed us, each one of us, in our exact circumstances, in our exact families, in this exact point of history, in this exact nation, in this exact town, in this exact church where we're sitting right now. You, in your sovereign purpose and design, have placed each one of us here for a reason. And Lord, there's so many times where I've wondered, why did you put me here? Why didn't you put me somewhere in the far past or somewhere in the future? Why was I born into my family and not another? Why was I put in the nation of Canada and not some other? But yet in all of this, Lord, it's your design. You have ordained each life. And you have given each one of us a purpose and a calling. And Father, I pray that each one of us would recognize that the primary purpose and calling you have is for each one of us to place faith in you and live out that faith according to your word, exactly where you've put us. We don't need to go a long ways away. We don't need to go to China or around the world to do it. Your purpose is for us to live this faith out courageously, boldly, clearly, with passion and conviction right here right now today, 
in our families, in our workplaces, in our relationships, wherever you have put us, it's for a reason. And so, Lord, as we stand firm in your word, we recognize that circumstances around us in our culture and our world are changing rapidly. We see that the enemy, he's, he's pushing. He's pushing towards his end game. But Lord, we also want to acknowledge so clearly today that your word assures us that no matter what the enemy does, you have a way forward for your children. And that you will bring about the ultimate victory through Jesus Christ our Savior, that you will return for your bride, the church, and we will stand forever victorious with you. And Lord, I thank you that your promise is sure that until that day, you will give us the courage, the conviction, and the faith to stand firm in this world, no matter what darkness comes against us. For greater are you who is in us than he that is in the world. And we thank you that you are in us by your Holy Spirit, that you give us the courage to stand firm even when everyone else is compromising. And so, Father, we pray that this church would stand firm in your word, that you would bless and keep us, and that you would make our light shine in this community in such a way that people would glorify you and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And, Father, I pray today for anyone here today who recognizes that they've been compromising who recognizes that they have not been standing firm. I pray, Lord, that by your Holy Spirit and through your conviction, that you would bring about a repentant heart to say, Lord, I want to stand firm in you. Help me. Help me to repent, not just in word, but in action. And to live it out, because I know, Lord, that if anyone anyone comes to you with a sincere heart, you will bless that. You will bless that, and you will make a way forward that will be better than whatever path they were on before. And so I pray, Lord, that you would work in each one of our hearts to that end, that we would humbly come before you and recognize that it is always your way that is the best way, no matter what it looks like. Bless us, your people, Lord. We bless your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.